turn with me to Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32. It's the passage we're looking at. We started this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we will continue on through the passage. This section of Scripture presents to us what's commonly known as the unpardonable sin, namely blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Many Christians are familiar with this passage, but many of them do not always understand it, and there have been many false fears that have arisen because of a misunderstanding of this passage. God, by his, the virtue of his very nature, is a God of forgiveness. It is his nature to forgive. The Old Testament abounds with examples of, of, that God forgives. Uh, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah, God forgave him. Uh, God's in the business of forgiving. And so we should consider the fact that when Jesus says in this text that there is an unforgivable sin, that ought to be something that demands our clear attention and understanding. Because on the surface, it may appear God is going against the very grain of his nature unless we truly understand what he's saying. It, it doesn't really matter how severe the sin is. God can still forgive. And we saw that it, last time it isn't the volume of sin that's unforgivable any more than it's the kind of sin. Uh, so <clears throat> that tells us that the unpardonable sin is a very unique thing. And in no way does it violate the forgiving heart of God. And so some people come along and they say, well, then it must be that the unpardonable sin is a sin of rejecting Christ. But if the sin of rejecting Christ was unforgivable, none of us could have ever been forgiven. Because every one of us, to one degree or another, prior to our redemption, were Christ rejectors. So that is forgivable also. Uh, in the New Covenant, the required condition for forgiveness is repentance and confession and faith in Jesus Christ. If that condition is met, even the greatest sin can be forgiven. If it's not, then the smallest sin will result in eternal judgment and eternal hell because it's cosmic treason against a holy God. Uh, and just to give you a little hint as to why the Pharisees couldn't be forgiven, the reason they were beyond pardon was because they perceived themselves as being beyond the need for repentance. Uh, so beginning in verse 22, as we look at this passage, we see there are five segments uh, in the final rejection of Jesus Christ. They are the action of Jesus in healing a man, the amazement of the crowd, the accusation by the Pharisees, the answer to his accusers, and the anathema he pronounced on his accusers. And some of this I'm just reviewing now. We, we looked at this last time. But verse 22, we see the action of Jesus in healing a man. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, I don't think any of us are shocked by the fact that Jesus healed him uh, because he'd healed hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people with similar problems to this man during the time of his ministry. There's nothing particularly novel about the fact that he healed this man. Uh, his supernatural power could no longer be questioned. Uh, either by the common multitudes or by the more educated and skeptical religious leaders. But they were ambivalent about who he was. Even though they knew he was demonstrating supernatural power, they refused to believe in him. 
They refused to accept him as their Messiah because he didn't fit their preconceived perspective as to what the Messiah would be. And when this healing takes place, it's so spectacular that it sets off a reaction that triggers the whole issue of where he gets his power. So this man's brought to Jesus who heals him, casts out the demon, and instantly, not only does he have spiritual deliverance from demonic control, but he has total wellness. He's blind, instantly he sees. He was mute, instantly he talks. Uh, if he was also deaf, which often accompanied muteness, uh, then immediately he hears. So all of his faculties function as if there had never been a problem. And so that brings us then to our second element, which is the amazement of the crowd, verse 23. It says, all the crowds were astounded and were saying, can this man really be the son of David? It says they were astounded. The word here means to be totally astounded, to be beside yourself with astonishment. One lexicon described it as uh, meaning, it's meaning to be uh, come astounded to such a degree that it is to nearly lose one's mental composure. Uh, <clears throat> and to put it in our vernacular today, we would say they were blown away. Uh, they just couldn't handle it. It was overwhelming. And they start asking one another the question, can this man really be the son of David? Uh, they're beginning to recognize that such miracles are possibly messianic signs. And when the Pharisees hear the question, they go into instant panic. Uh, they've, they've got to stop the process and stop it fast. I mean, they can't let it go on further. The very suggestion that this man might be the Messiah, no matter how remote still in their thinking, they can't allow that to be introduced into their thinking. And they can't tolerate that. So that brings us to the next element, <clears throat> which is the accusation by the Pharisees. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Pharisees heard what the people in the crowd were saying to one another, and they panic. There's no way they could deny that Jesus had done an incredible miracle. And so the best they can come up with is that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Now think about this. This is a monumental apologetic for the life of Christ when his enemies hated him so much that the most they could do, uh, they, they couldn't do anything but conclude that what he did was done with supernatural power. Uh, and they, so they have to defend the fact that he's supernatural, but they say he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Uh, so they're saying Satan is in him. They have ascribed to him as being satanic. They recognize the supernatural character of what he does and they only have two options one he's of god or second he's of satan and they opt for satan uh, so watch how jesus deals with that and destroys their stupid accusation uh, in his answer verses 25 to 30 and knowing their thoughts he said to them any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. 
He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And Jesus answers their accusation by telling them there's three things that are wrong with it. It was absurd, it was prejudiced, and it was rebellious. And we looked, first of all, at the, that the accusation was absurd. He says to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. <coughs> That's what we call a truism. It's axiomatic. <coughs> a kingdom divided against itself is going to fall. Uh, a house divided against itself is going to fall. Uh, a city divided against itself is going to fall. Uh, you can't have chaos in a house or city or nation without the whole thing begin to fall apart. And so a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And then he makes the application in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? In other words, do you guys think Satan is so stupid he's going to destroy his own kingdom? That is, is he's going to have all the demons casting each other out and defeating their own purpose. Uh, so your conclusion is absurd and asinine. Now, follow his reasoning here. He, he did deeds that could only be explained as supernatural. Even though, since even his critics knew that, they had one of two choices. Either he did them by the power of Satan or the power of God. They chose the power of Satan. So Jesus says that's absurd. So what alternative is left? By their own stupidity, they're forced into the very obvious truth that what he does, he does by the power of God. Uh, he's putting them in a corner with their own words. Uh, Satan's not going to go around trying to destroy his own work. Uh, Jesus spent all his ministry casting out Satan. If he's doing that by the power of Satan, then Satan's destroying his own kingdom, and that certainly is not his goal. Uh, so Satan's not going to go around casting out his demons, defeating his system. Therefore, if Jesus is doing this and it's the flow of life in his ministry, you can be sure he's not of Satan. So the Pharisees' accusation was absurd. Second, we saw that it is prejudice. Verse 27, And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. What does he mean? In other words, he's saying, Well, let's suppose that for a moment you're right. But don't your sons do the same things? So if they do the same thing, by whose power do they do it? Uh, it's, he's referring to the sons. Your sons is a reference to the disciples of the Pharisees. There were certain people who sat at the feet of the Pharisees to learn their system, their legalism, their approach to life, and they became known as the sons of the Pharisees or the disciples of the Pharisees. And among those groups of the sons of the Pharisees, were, there were those who were involved in exorcisms. And there's a group of seven of them discussed in Acts 19 uh, who even tried to invoke Jesus' name in the process of their attempt to cast out a demon from a man. And Jesus' point here in Matthew 12 is, hey guys, you've got your own sons trying to do the same thing. Why would you say I do it by the power of Satan unless you're just totally and utterly prejudiced against me? Uh, because when they do it and it's not legitimate, you ascribe it to God. When I do it and the evidence is irrefutable, you ascribe it to Satan. It's the same activity on the surface, it just shows how prejudiced you are against me. And that is the heart of the matter in dealing with Jesus Christ. People who do not reject, people do not reject Jesus Christ because of there's a lack of evidence that he is God. They reject him because they're biased against him. 
And they're biased for the most part because men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They don't want the intimidation that Christ brings into their sinful life. And in their prejudice, instead of being open to receive him, they push him away. And in doing that, they have to conclude absurd and prejudiced things about him. And then he takes it a step further and he says, you do realize that your sons will be your judges in that argument, don't you? Let's bring them in and ask them a simple question. By whose power do you cast out demons, God or Satan? Now, what's the obvious answer that these exorcists would say? They would say they did it by God's power. If they say they did it by the power of Satan, they betray the whole system. Uh, they would condemn themselves. But on the other hand, if they said they did it by the power of God, they would be affirming that Jesus must also be doing it by the power of God. So Jesus has caught them in their own argument, and all it does is reveal they were prejudiced and biased against him. Well, there's a third aspect of their argument that Jesus' answer reveals, and this is where we stopped last time two weeks ago, and that is that the accusation was rebellious. The accusation was rebellious. Look at verses 28 to 30. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the climax. He says, not only is your accusation absurd and biased and inconsistent, but it shows your rebellion against the kingdom. Uh, you see, the truth is that he does cast out demons by the Spirit of God, right? Anything else would be absurd. So we know it's God's power. In his incarnation as a servant, Jesus restricted the use of his own prerogatives. He obeyed the Father's will and was energized by the Holy Spirit. So he's casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Now you might be wondering, why does he say that? Why does he say, if I do this by the Spirit's power? Uh, because by the time you get to verse 28 in the conversation, that's the only remaining alternative. Uh, he has eliminated the other alternative that he does it by the power of Satan. He's proven that such a position is ridiculous, absurd, and reveals total prejudice against him. The only alternative left is that he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can see the absolute genius of the divine mind. He has them in a corner from which they cannot get out, and then he says, if then I do it by the Spirit of God, which is the only remaining alternative, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, what does that mean? Well, where is the kingdom? The kingdom is where the king happens to be. And so he's saying, I'm the king, and the kingdom is near you. That puts them in a real serious position, because the kingdom is near, and they're so far from it. They're worse off than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Those cities were indifferent to Christ. These guys aren't indifferent. They're blasphemous. You see, there is a future kingdom, the millennial kingdom. <coughs> and there's a future kingdom even beyond the millennial kingdom in the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. But we also believe that the kingdom is wherever the king is. And I believe that if the king lives in my life, the kingdom is here, the sphere of his rule. And he's saying to them, I am the king. That's the only alternative. And if I am the king, then the kingdom has come upon you. 
they're faced with the fact that there was no other alternative. He's demonstrated the powers of the kingdom. He's healed the sick. He's cleansed the lepers. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. He's pardoned sinners. He's preached the truth. He's unmasked the hypocrites. He's done everything to demonstrate who he is, and there's no other explanation that he is supernatural, and there's no other source for his supernatural power than God. Because anything else would be utterly absurd. And if that's true, then the kingdom is here. He illustrates that so well in verse 29 by giving them another truism. He says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? In other words, he says, Let's say that there's a guy who's a very strong man and he owns a house and you want to rob his house. You don't go to his house and say, look, I'd like you to help me. I'm planning to rob you. So I need you to get this thing and this other thing for me so that I can have them. No, he says, first you tie up the man and then you rob his house. Uh, so in effect, he's saying, haven't I demonstrated to you by the ability that I have to tie up Satan, that I'm greater than he. Uh, haven't I shown you by my ability to steal his property, to control his host, to throw out his demons, to deliver men who are captive to his system, to free them from their diseases, that I can plunder his house. And if I can plunder his house, I can bind him up. And if I can bind him up, I'm greater than him. Now they understood and knew that <clears throat> the only one higher than Satan was God himself. There's only one person who could bind Satan. All of the phony faith healers going around saying, I'm going to bind Satan, have absolutely no idea what they're saying. They have no power whatsoever to bind him, and they don't have the authority to treat God like he is their personal genie who will bind Satan at their beck and call. In Revelation 20, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, God sends one of his mighty angels to bind Satan in the pit for a thousand years. And so Jesus is giving the people of Israel a little taste of the kingdom. If you need any greater demonstration that Christ can bind Satan in the millennium than this, then you're not looking very closely. He proves he can tie him up. How? Because he can plunder his house. He can steal men who are captive to his system. He can deliver the demons out of them. He can control that whole operation. Do you remember the demon-possessed man in the land of Gadarenes that we studied about in chapter 8? In Mark's account of that incident, it tells us that Jesus asked the demon his name. What was his answer? My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion was anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And that's with just a word, Jesus was able to deliver that man from their control instantaneously. He had control over the demons. He had control over the men who were captive to the demons. He could plunder Satan's house anytime he wanted. That is the essence of Colossians 1.13 that tells us that Christ is the one who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. He has power over that dominion. He has power over that world. And if that is true, <coughs> then he must be the one who he claimed to be. And so Christ entered into Satan's house, tied him up, and stole his property. And he's still doing that, by the way. Uh, you see, at one time, we were all Satan's property, weren't we? 
We were children of wrath. We were just like the Jews in John 8. We, we were of our father, the devil, and we wanted to do the desires of our father. Uh, we belonged to him. We were ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, 2, and he, he took us out of Satan's hand and delivered us just as he delivered that man on that day here in our text. Jesus has already demonstrated his power over Satan in Matthew 4 and his temptation, and this is just a reaffirmation of that. You know, in Luke 10, the Lord talks about having total power over Satan. He gave authority over demonic spirits to 70 of his disciples and sent them out. When they came back, they were rejoicing that they had authority over the demons in Jesus' name. And he said, his response was, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus had already begun to tie Satan up to overthrow his kingdom, something he will do fully in the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity when he binds him for a thousand years and he lets him loose for a little while and then he casts him into the pit of fire. And the death blow to Satan was struck at the cross where we're told in Hebrews 2.14 that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. <clears throat> Presently, Satan's still running around doing all kinds of damage. But regardless of how it seems to us, his power is limited. His doom is sealed. His time is short. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I'm the king. I've proven it by my ability to control Satan's dominion. And if I'm the king, then the kingdom is here. And that means it's available to you, so enter it. So how do you enter it? By faith in Christ. And then he tells them that you've got to make a decision. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He uses a similar phrase to that in Mark 9, 40. Uh, but he had a whole different meaning in mind there. There he was talking about service. Here he is talking about salvation. And what he means here is very simple. And that is that there is no neutrality about him. You either gather or you scatter. Uh, you're either, you either say Jesus is of Satan or you say he's of God. You only have those two options because you can't deny his supernatural power. And if you say that you want to say he's a Satan, then you just said an absurdity and you've revealed your prejudice because he went about doing good things and delivering people from Satan. And why would you say of him that he's satanic when you will say of others who do the same thing that they're not? You're prejudiced and you're absurd and you reveal that at the bottom of it, you're rebe rebelling against the reality that the kingdom is here. There's nothing anyone can do with Jesus Christ except to affirm that he is who he claimed to be. There is no middle ground. No one can simply say, well, he's a nice man, a good teacher, a moral fellow, a great prophet, a great religious leader. He's either of Satan or he's of God. And if you don't want to stand with the absurd, biased, rebellious Pharisees, you're left with the fact that he's of God. <coughs> you can bring the whole thing down to this. You're either with him or you're against him. It's that simple. And once you've made that decision, then it affects how you operate. Uh, you will either gather with him in the kingdom or you will scatter away from the kingdom. So verse 30 deals with your personal relationship and your effect on others. You're either a part of drawing men into his kingdom or a part of sending them away. 
Well, after telling them that the kingdom has come upon them, and if they're not with them, they're scattering people away from the kingdom, he then pronounces an anathema, a curse upon them. And that brings us to verses 31 and 32. The anathema. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Few passages have been more misinterpreted and misunderstood than these two verses uh, because of their extreme seriousness and finality it's critical to understand them correctly so I hope we can get some good understanding of it as we look at its simplicity in the context of this chapter Jesus begins by saying therefore I say to you any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people now stop there that's a very simple statement although blasphemy is a sin in a sense they're distinct. In this passage, the two are treated separately, with blasphemy representing the most extreme form of sin. Sin represents the overall category of evil deeds, immoral acts, ungodly thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Blasphemy is the unique sin of consciously speaking evil against God, of saying things about God that are not true about him of speaking of God in a derogatory manner. That is blasphemy. It's a defiant irreverence. It is to speak evil of holy God. Now, Jesus begins by saying all that any, that any kind of sin or blasphemy is forgivable. That's what the word any means. It's a Greek word which means every kind of or all sorts of, every, all. He says, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Now, if he stopped there, it would sound like a statement of universalism. That all sins will be forgiven and thus everyone would go to heaven. Or you could interpret it to mean that there's no such thing as the unpardonable sin. But we know from other scriptures that there are conditions to the forgiveness of sin. And we definitely see that there is a condition to it because the rest of the verse says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So there's one sin that God will not forgive. So this is not a universalist statement that no matter what you do or what you think or what you believe, ultimately all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. It's not that at all. It will be forgiven when the conditions are met and the condition forgiveness of sin is very clearly given in the New Testament as repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you confess your sin and turn away from your sin to Christ in faith, believing and receiving him as Savior, then God will forgive and he'll forgive you all your sin and all your blasphemy. The ultimate, the, the classic illustration of this is the Apostle Paul who said that of himself in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 13 to 15. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is more than abundant with the, love, with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. 
So he says, I was the worst of sinners. I was a blasphemer. I spoke evil against God, and yet I was forgiven. Yes, all manner of sin and blasphemy is forgivable. God is in the business of forgiving sin. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can read Psalm 32, 5, where David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 103, 12, where he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And the prophet Micah, who says in Micah 7, 18 and 19, who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We find the same thought in Isaiah 43, 25. For God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. We find the same thing in the New Testament. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous, forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again and again and again, that is the message. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And God will graciously forgive any sin, including the sin of blasphemy. May I add a footnote that even when a Christian blasphemes God, it is forgivable. You say, would a Christian blaspheme God? We do it all the time. All the time. Anytime you think a thought or say a word that speaks against God, you've, you've blasphemed. You've spoken evil of his name. For example, if you say, God, that wasn't fair. That's blaspheming him. Or if you ever say to God, you, you say, uh, God, you say you'll meet my needs, but you haven't met my needs. You're not telling me the truth. That's blasphemy. But I believe God will forgive that sin in the life of a Christian, and I think there's reason to believe that. Look with me at Colossians 3 for a moment. Colossians 3. Beginning in verse 3, it tells us, For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And that, of course, is talking about our salvation. We're dead as far as our old life is concerned. We're dead as far as being responsible to face the penalty of the law. We're, we're dead in the past life, alive in the new life. Our life is secure with Christ in God. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. So now we're living the Christ life. We're redeemed. And now that we're redeemed, now that we are risen with Christ, we have a heavenly identification, and so we should, verse 5, kill certain sins in our lives. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to spiritual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And you get down to verse 8, and he says, but now you also lay them all aside Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do you see that word slander? It is the Greek word blasphemia. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is to slander someone's character. You can blaspheme God or you can blaspheme another human being. So what he's saying here there is that even a redeemed person 
may have to deal with the reality of blasphemy in his life, whether towards other people or towards God. When a believer says to God, God, it isn't right what you're putting me through. It just isn't fair, God. Let me tell you what you ought to do. Here's how you should handle it. Then, in a sense, you're speaking evil against God. You're telling him that you're wiser than he is, that you know better than him, that his ways are not the best for you. You're slandering and blaspheming him. So I think believers can and do blaspheme God's name, and it is sin, but it is forgivable. Now, going back to our text in Matthew 12, we come to the last half of verse 31, and it says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. That little adversative, but, makes all the difference. Now we're introduced to something that is not forgivable. And this is the only sin in the Bible of which it is ever said that it is unforgivable. Now please understand that blasphemy is serious. Do you know what the penalty was for blasphemy in the Old Testament? Death. Death by stoning. Leviticus 24, 15 and 16 tells us, And if you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. If anyone curse the name of God, they were to be stoned to death. God takes that seriously. You know that this same sin is mentioned back in the Old Testament as being unforgivable? All the way back in Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31, God said, The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, that one is blaspheming Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. To blaspheme Yahweh meant you were cut off from God and your guilt remained on you. So if you read 1 Samuel 2 sometime, you'll see that the high priest <coughs> Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were evil men. In fact, 1 Samuel 2.2 it says now the sons of Eli were vile men. Literally, it says that they were sons of Belial, that is Satan. Um, they did not know Yahweh. And it recounts how they defamed the worship of Yahweh by spurning the proper procedures for the sacrifices to him. And they were committing adultery with the women who served in the doorway of the tabernacle. And so in 1 Samuel 3, God was speaking to young Samuel in a vision about what he was about to do to the house of Eli the high priest, and here's what he says, beginning in verse 11. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will establish against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I have told him I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons have been bringing a curse on themselves, but he did not rebuke them. Now, therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house 
shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now theologians have debated what the exact sin of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, was. But regardless of that, the point is their sin was unforgivable. There was nothing that could atone for it. I believe that based on all that they had done in despising God's proper procedures for worship and their vile sins, they had blasphemed his name and thus they reached the point where they were unforgivable and thus God killed them by the hand of the Philistines. When you look at the vile, wretched, wicked world under the rule of the Antichrist in the tribulation, you find that you find in Revelation 13, 16, and 17 that it will be characteristic of the society in that day that they will blaspheme the God of heaven. They will speak evil against him. It's a serious sin. Now, Jesus, in here in, back in Matthew 12, Jesus defines this sin further in verse 32. It says, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Stop there again. If you speak against the Son of Man, that's forgivable. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus, Jesus Christ, yes. So what's he saying by this statement? He's saying, you can speak against Christ, but the emphasis comes from the title Son of Man, which designates not his deity, but rather his humanity. Understand that. It speaks of him in his humiliation, uh, his servitude. We're seeing him as a vessel through which the Spirit of God is working. And so he is saying you can speak a word against the Son of Man, and that would be forgivable. Why? Because you may speak against him seeing nothing more than his humanness. In other words, you may not recognize that you're dealing with deity. So if you're speaking against him as the Son of Man, you're condemning him because all you believe him to be is a man, even though you're wrong. Uh, in other words, you might say, if that guy is the second person of the Trinity, I'm not impressed. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. So you could speak against the human Jesus in his humiliation, and that's forgivable. Remember, Paul said he was a blasphemer, but God forgave him because he acted in ignorance. So someone may not know the facts. They may not know who he really is. They may not see the evidence. They may be just talking at a human level without the perception of the divine. That's what he's saying. But now watch this carefully. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. Why? Because when you say, I recognize the supernatural, I recognize that Jesus has supernatural power, but I think it's from Satan, not God. For that, you won't be forgiven. If you're looking at him strictly on the human level, and that's all you perceive and understand, you can be brought along to believe and understand and be forgiven. But if when you have seen the supernatural and the ministry of the Spirit of God through Christ, and you conclude that it is of Satan, you can't be forgiven. Because now you're speaking against the Spirit of God, the power of God, the energy of God made manifest through Christ. And so in a real sense, you're speaking against his deity, his divine nature, and calling it satanic. Remember Nathaniel's question? As he laid there under that fig tree, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That reflected the average person's thinking 
<clears throat> about the people of Nazareth. They weren't impressed with the human aspects of Jesus. But that's a far cry from saying, yes, we've seen his supernatural power. We've seen his miracles. We've heard his teaching. We've seen him cast out demons. And our conclusion is that power is satanic. That is unforgivable. Why? Listen carefully. Forgiveness is based on repentance and faith in Christ, right? Now, if they concluded that Christ was filled with Satan, they certainly weren't going to listen to his message about repentance and place their faith in him. The reason they can never be forgiven is because they never would believe. Why? Because when they had been given all the evidence that there was, their conclusion was the very opposite of the truth. Therefore, they were hopeless. If you only knew a little bit about Jesus Christ, you could be brought along to know more until it finally dawned on you what the truth was. But if you've known all the truth and you have concluded that he is satanic, you're hopeless. Before you can be saved, you must believe that Jesus Christ is God and the only Savior in whom you will place your faith and allegiance. You must believe that you are a sinner and that you must repent of those sins and turn to him in saving faith. But if you examine Jesus Christ and observe all that he did and taught and then consider him to be satanic, then you certainly will not trust in him to forgive your sins and thus you can never be redeemed and forgiven. That's why at the end of verse 32, it says that you won't be forgiven in this age or in the one to come. There would be no forgiveness. You see, the, these guys saw the work of the Holy Spirit and they said, it's of Satan. And this wasn't a small matter. They had seen thousands of miracles and healings and dealings with demons. They had seen dramatic individual miracles and miracles on a massive scale. They had heard teachings and preachings. There was no other society that lived on the face of the earth that had the information they had about who he was. And they concluded he was of the devil. So he says, you can never be forgiven. There's no way. Why? Because they will never get to the state needed for forgiveness, which is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they have concluded the very opposite. So it isn't as if God arbitrarily says, I don't like the way you're treating my son. I'll never forgive you even if you come to me. No, what he's saying is that you've seen all the evidence, all of the proof, yet you concluded that my son is satanic. Therefore, it is obvious that you will never come to me. Therefore, you will never be forgiven. In the face of every possible evidence of Jesus' messiahship and deity, they said no. God could do nothing more for them, and they would therefore remain eternally unforgiven. Listen to what Bible scholar William Hendrickson has to say about this. He writes, quote, For penitence, they substitute hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there's hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the Spirit, 
he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition, end quote. So they did it to themselves, and because they hardened their hearts against the obvious truth, their unbelief became a permanent, unpardonable condition. God judicially abandons them in their own state of unbelief, and they're permanently condemned without any hope of ever repenting. Let me... Just checking to see. Tell you what, we're going to have to stop. Going to have to stop here, hold it, and finish this up next week and then move on into the next section. But before we do, are there any comments or questions before we go? Yes, Barry. In the Exodus story with Pharaoh, uh, did he, he uh, commit the unpardonable uh, sin? I don't know that there's enough evidence in the text to say so. We, we see what happens with Pharaoh is that over and over and over again, it says God hardened his heart. Sometimes it says he hardened his own heart. But then over and repeatedly, it says God hardened his heart. And then we come to the passage where, and I can't place where it's at right now. It's in the New Testament that, that tells us that Pharaoh was raised up for the purpose, that very purpose. I mean, think about it. Here's a man who God designed and had born specifically for that purpose. For his glory. For, his glory, for God's glory. Wow. So, okay. Anything else? Yes. Uh, could the Pharisees have really believed and known that Jesus was God or God, but just attributed and said that he was Jesus of Satan? You mean they they knew the truth in their heart, but they lied about it? Well, let's say some people knew the truth, uh, but not all. And we know what happened with Nick. There, he he ended up becoming a believer. But uh, but the vast majority did not. They rather than believe the truth. They chose to believe a lie. They were faced with the truth. And we're going to look at that next week in Hebrews 6. As we see it applying to today. Hebrews 6. Okay. Anything else? Yes. So the combination then was that God that they placed themselves in a place. And we know that someone comes to Christ through the work of God, but they place themselves in a place where they, where they basically said that Jesus is satanic, and then God basically abandoned them and left them to their own devices, which means that they could never come to faith. Good way of summarizing it, Casper. God abandoned them. He says, you will not believe, therefore, you're done. He doesn't make any more. And he does the same thing with people today. He will plead with people for years, but it reaches a point where God judicial, judicially walks away and leaves them. 
the whole thing about don't cast your pearls before swine? It reaches that point. We as humans don't know what point that is, but God does. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Does the same principle apply to like nations? The same principle apply to nations? Well, there's only one nation that God ever called and made his own. The rest of the nations he has chosen to bless or not bless. And the basis of that is how they responded to his chosen people. And the further away they get from blessing his chosen people, the less blessing he puts on that nation. And he just, but but all the nations other than his own nation are controlled by what? Demonic forces. So, and that includes us. Okay? All right. Well, let's close with prayer and be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. These are hard truths, hard to understand sometimes, and Lord, have an impact in our lives as we think about family members, friends, and others who, who claim to know and understand the truth about Jesus Christ and yet refuse to believe and perhaps even blaspheme Jesus himself. Lord, we don't know their hearts, but you do. And you know whether or not they are savable. We don't know. So we just trust you for your uh, sovereign control in their lives. In the meantime, Lord, we keep calling them to repentance and faith. Now bless us as we go into the worship service. Encourage us through your word as we sing and rejoice together about our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.